follow along in the back of your bulletin. We're looking at questions from Christmas, but of course we need God's blessing on his word, so let's pray again and ask for him to teach us. Father God, here we are again before your word, and I ask that you would humbly or humble us, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word, and unite our hearts, draw our hearts to submit to you. I pray that you would take our minds, we surrender those to you. May we think like you want us to think. Take our wills. Today as we talk about the desires that we have for our children, I pray that you would mold and cultivate our desires to fit with what you desire and what glorifies you. And then take our bodies and may we be used for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 1 is where we get our question for today. John the Baptist is born, and in this time it's really common for parents to name their kids after themselves. And so we find in Luke chapter 1, verse 65, or verse 60, verse 60, his mother answered, his name will be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted his son to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name's John. They all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God, which is the passage we read. Fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child become? That's the question I want to think about today. What then will this child become? What are your hopes and dreams for your children? Think about that. What are your hopes and your dreams for your children or for your grandchildren? At John the Baptist's birth, the people all wondered what this child would become. And as parents, we often think about that question. Some of you may feel like you've disappointed your parents. <laughs> and you didn't live up to your own parents' expectations or your own parents' hopes of what you would become. But let's look at good dreams to have for our kids. Because I think in general, when I talk to parents, every parent that I know has a desire for their kids. And we have uh, two little kids outside the womb right now, one little kid inside the womb. So think about our kids often. And I have desires and dreams for them. And usually when I talk to parents, it's like, well, everything that was bad about my life when I was young, I don't want my kids to have. <laughs> and everything that was good, I want them to have. And so well, let's just eliminate the bad and have the good. That's kind of the overall of it. We want them to have a good marriage, a good job, a good education, to avoid the things that you did. You're like, oh, I don't like remembering that about my past. But what are good biblical values that every single one of us should desire for our children or for ourselves or for our grandchildren? I think that we get four characteristics, four things that we should desire for our kids from the life of John the Baptist. And number one is John the Baptist was a man with no fear of man. John the Baptist was a man with no fear of man, and we as parents should desire that our kids grow up without the fear of man. Look at Luke chapter 3. We're going to follow along the life of John the Baptist. He's older now. Luke chapter 3, this is page 856 in your chair Bibles there. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Phil told me to have hellfire and brimstone in the sermon today, so i got to keep that up. <laughs> Imagine if you came into church and the pastor gets up and says, You brood of vipers! You're like, wow, this is, uh, this is a new experience for me. This is what John the Baptist says. 
says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say for yourselves, because we have Abraham as our father, because we are Lutheran, because we are Baptist, because we're Catholic, because we're this, because we're that, because we have this, we're good. And he goes, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Everyone, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? He answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. Whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him and said, teacher, what will we do? And he said, don't collect more than you're authorized to do. Because at that time, tax collectors would take and they'd say, here's the tax that the government requires you to have. And here's my tax on you. And I'm needing to build a bigger house, so my tax is a little bit heavier this time. And he says, don't collect more taxes than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And we don't get this that much, but a lot of other countries, especially third world countries, the police force is extremely corrupt. So even in this time, it's like, you're in trouble? Well, here, why don't you pay me a little bit of money and you're not in trouble? And the, the soldier said, what are we to do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. We could preach a whole sermon on that line. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets and his father Zechariah was a priest with regular ministries and jobs that he performed over the course of his life. But a prophet was different. Old Testament prophets were known for strong words, and they didn't just get up and say, hey, I have a prophecy to give to you. It was they had to hear from God, and then it would, they would bring it to you. And Old Testament prophets were often asked to do some little strange things. For instance, did you know that Ezekiel was asked to buy underwear, bury it for a few months, and then take it out and use it as a sermon illustration? A little bit weird. And you have Isaiah, he named his kids, his, his kids were named after some of the things that God was going to do to the country. And even in, in the life of Hosea, Hosea paid for a prostitute who was his wife and he took her back. And God said, just like Israel has prostituted itself to other gods, so now God takes her back to take care of her. And so the prophets were a little bit different. They weren't like your typical preacher who just gets up every Sunday and, and delivers a sermon. Prophets had very special words from God, and they were often very, very difficult, and they called people back to God. But during his short ministry, John spoke to soldiers, politicians, tax collectors, and he spoke to fathers and children. He spoke to prophet, prostitutes. He spoke to all sorts of people, and he called it like he saw it, and it ended up getting him killed. But what a blessing would it be if our children grew up to fear the Lord and him only? Wouldn't that be a great thing? They didn't grow up with a fear of man. Look at this verse with me. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Have you ever seen someone in their life who is so afraid of people that it suffocated them? It does. When we're afraid of people, it keeps us from saying things. It keeps us from being our authentic self. It keeps us from being interacting with other people. It often keeps us from deep relationships because we're afraid that if people actually know us, they won't like us. And so there's this fear of man, and it lays a snare. The king of preachers once said this. He said, he who tries to please everyone attempts the impossible. Maybe you've tried that. Preachers try that a lot. Try to get up here and preach a sermon that everyone likes. I haven't succeeded yet. <laughs> I'm starting to think it's not going to happen. 
he who preach or he who tries to please everyone attempts the impossible. And I've met several people with social anxiety who struggle to interact in person because they're so anxious about what people think of them. And I think most parents growing up in our day and age of mental health hope and desire that their kids grow up mentally healthy, able to interact with other people. John did not worry about what people thought of him. And even the guy who he called out as a sinner, Herod, John called him out as a sinner, said, you should not have the wife that you have. And Herod threw him in prison, and eventually Herod killed him. Of John the Baptist, Herod said that he was a man who was a righteous and holy man, and Herod would sneak away to talk to John because he had respect for him. And if I'm, to, if I'm a betting man here, I would bet that the, some of the people you respect the most are people who don't live out of fear of people. They don't have a fear of man. He makes even our enemies to be at peace with us is one of the scripture verses. So a good value that we should have for our kids is that they be a man with no fear of man. Number two, John the Baptist teaches us out of his life that he was a man who knew his place. Look at Luke 1. We're going to stay in the book of Luke. We'll have some of the other scriptures up there, but we're going to stay in the book of Luke for the most part for a turn in. We'll jump over to John one time. But Luke chapter 1, verse 76 says, you child, this is his father prophesying about his son, you child will be called prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John knew his place, and he never tried to raise himself above Jesus. And one godly saint actually knows three pictures of John the Baptist that are given in Scripture. And here they are. These are in your notes. Letter A is, he was a voice. Jesus was the Word. John the Baptist was a voice, but Jesus was the Word. And so even as we think about it, in John chapter 1, it talks about Jesus being the light. That's the next one. But when John preached with such authority, they were expecting that he was the Christ. And some even questioned in their hearts whether John was the Christ. But John knew that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John was the voice, Jesus was the word. One commentator put it this way. He said that a voice without words can make noise and get attention. And any parent already knows that. (laughs) A voice without words can make noise and get attention, but it can't give instruction. Just as my words reveal my mind and my heart to others, so Jesus, the word, reveals the mind and heart of God to us. Do you understand that what John the Baptist knew is he goes, I'm not Christ. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the hero. I'm not the one who needs all the attention. It's Christ. So he was a voice of one getting ready for Jesus. Second picture is John was a lamp. Jesus was the light. Here, we'll turn to John chapter 1. So turn with me to John chapter 1. Letter B, John was the lamp, Jesus was the light. In John, the Gospel of John, this is page 886, if you're following along in a chair Bible there. Gospel of John talks about John the Baptist. And it says that John was a light. If we look at verse 6 of John chapter 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, this is he of whom I said comes before me because he ranks before me because he was before me. John was a lamp. Jesus was a light. In John chapter 5, verse 33, John, Jesus calls John a burning and shining lamp. And it is possible to have a lamp without a light. Just this Thursday, uh, I came out and I get the, I'm, I'm like many people where I got to get my morning coffee ready and I'm not really alive until after that. <laughs> and I came out getting ready to sit down and read my Bible. And my normal spot where I sit, right by the Christmas tree, the lamp's out. I'm like, oh, i got to sit in the other chair. Such a hardship, right? That's first world problems. But I thought, you know, there might, be, there might be something else that's going on here. Well, guess what? I have kids. And you know what my kids like to do? They like to unplug things. Uh, they like to leave all the lights on and unplug things. <laughs> but this one, they, they unplugged. And so I plugged it back in and boom, I have light. But a lamp by itself does not create light. It needs that electricity. Any of you have oil lamps? You guys have oil lamps? Do you use them at this time? My growing up, you know, it got dark early and one of my parents, they, they'd make it super special at home. We'd come in and we'd have supper by oil light. It was so cool. We thought it was amazing. You know, we'd, we'd light our little oil lamp and we'd have pancakes or something like that. And we'd sit around the table with just that light and every other light had to be off. And I remember growing up thinking that's the coolest thing ever. So then when I got older, what do I have to have? I have to have an oil lamp, right? So I bought one. But guess what I found out? If you don't have a wick or oil... <laughs> light switch it is John John understood I'm not the light and you know I've heard a story and I've shared this story with you before about a teacher who had a class of about a hundred and he filled up the, the hallway with balloons. They each wrote their name on the balloon. They mixed up the balloons. Maybe you've heard this. They mixed up the balloons, and the teacher said, okay, find your balloon. And by the end of the time, almost no one had found their balloon. He goes, okay, now what I want you to do, they, they reset. He said, now what I want you to do is pick up a balloon and find the person to whom it belongs. And within about two minutes, every single person had their balloon. And he taught them a lesson. He said, when we live our lives trying to please ourselves, trying to draw attention to ourselves, will never find happiness. Now, granted, this is a secular teacher, so he's just trying to get, get to happiness, but he teaches a good point. He says, but when we begin to serve and live for others, we'll find happiness faster. John the Baptist did not live for himself, and wouldn't it be great if our kids grew up and they knew their place and the world was not all about them? Wouldn't that be nice? Have you ever met a kid? No, don't answer this out loud. Because <laughs> you might have met my kid and thought this. But have you ever met a kid who would say they thought the entire world revolved around them? Where everything is about them. And what do you call that kid? Spoiled. Why? Because it's not good for the rest of your life. Because guess what? When you're an adult and you get a job, the world's not about you. John the Baptist understood Jesus is the light. I am just a lamp. I wonder how many of us actually hope that our children know their place. I've heard teachers say that kids can totally misbehave in class 
And even if they say one negative word to the kid, the parents get mad at the teachers. Ecclesiastes 10.16 says, Our land is cursed when rulers are a youth. It says in Isaiah 3.12 that youths often oppress people. And in Proverbs 28.16 that a leader who lacks judgment is a great oppressor. But there's one more picture about John that showed that he knew his place. John was the best man. Jesus was the groom. John was the best man. Jesus was the groom. It says in John chapter 3, verse 25, a discussion arose between some of the disciples and Jews over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Here is John's response in verse 29 through 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 30 was John's life verse, if you would. It's the summary, summary of his life. And the reality is, at a wedding, nobody really cares about the wedding party. <laughs> they don't really care about the wedding party unless you lock your knees and pass out during the service. Then they care about you. <laughs> Because you brought some entertainment to the wedding. But at a wedding, what are you there for? For the bride and the groom. And I've talked to lots of people. I even had a, a relative recently who was part of the wedding party. And they were all nervous about how they looked and what they were going to say in the speech or whatever. And it's like, nobody's really listening to you or looking at you. I don't know how to say that kindly. But nobody's really listening to you or looking at you. John the Baptist says, nobody's looking at me. I'm not the one who's supposed to get the attention here. Jesus is. How encouraging it would be to raise kids who are not competing, but are collaborating with others. When you see a sports team move flawlessly together as one unit, you're amazed. And it's fun to see that. And I remember... Uh, Emily grew up in Danville, Iowa, and their basketball team was like top-notch in high school. And sorry, Faithers, but it's just reality. She came to Faith for the first time, and she goes, I'm pretty sure our high school team could beat them. <laughs> we didn't have the greatest college basketball team at the time. And, and you know, and you've seen when you got someone who's a ball hog on the team. And it almost never helps the team and even in even in sports shows even in sports movies sometimes one of the the center stage things that happens is one person who was a ball hog passes the ball to someone and the team wins Woohoo! wouldn't it be great if our kids had this mindset jesus must increase i must decrease it's not about me just getting the attention you know, when a church works together to accomplish God's mission on earth, it's a beautiful thing. When an orchestra plays a masterpiece, you have unity but not uniformity. And this point challenges me in two ways, and I think it might challenge you too. Number one, it challenges me not to compete. It's sad to me when ministries and ministers compete. It's strange how Christians can react when another church is planted in their own town or near them. I actually... Uh, we were listening to Down Gilead Lane on cassette. Because I have a van that plays cassettes. And my daughter loves it. 
And in there, uh, there were two quarterbacks, and the one quarterback had just had it easy. Then all of a sudden, a new transfer student comes in, and he's the all-American quarterback. And now the dad of this quarterback who had it easy is all upset, and he's trying to donate jerseys and trying to buy his son's position. And I think it teaches me a lesson. If, if we are afraid of a church being planted in our town, perhaps it's because we're not doing what we are. Have you ever thought about that? I've seen that happen. A church that faithful to preach the gospel, faithful to reach out to others. And they went to plant a church and the church planner got a nasty letter from another church that said, we don't need another church here. Do you know that with the amount of people here and the amount of unchurched in our town, we could have anywhere from five to ten more churches like us and still not reach every unchurched person in this town only. And some of you come from Osage. Help us not to compete, God, but to honor him. Number two, it challenges me to be willing to play the background as long as Jesus gets the glory. Are we willing to labor our whole life not knowing the impact that we have of faithfully serving the Lord? There was an old Scottish preacher who once said this. He said, the Lord rarely allows his servants to see how much good they are doing. That's George Morrison. In fact, Matthew Henry pastored a church about this size his whole life. He decided to leave and go to another church. Another church asked him to come. And he said, okay, I'll come to your church. And so he packed up his wagon, because it's 1700s, packed up his wagon, and he headed out to go to this new church. And his church body followed him down the road, begging with him not to leave. The whole church came out and said, don't go. We love you. Please stay. He turned around, and he stayed there for the rest of his life. And he wrote the Matthew Henry commentaries, which are still in regular use and purchase today. Still considered one of the best commentary, commentaries that pastors can get. Just a small church. Guess what? He had no clue that he'd have that impact. He died in like 1714. <laughs> he had no clue about Aaron Moore using his commentaries. What a blessing it would be to have children who are characterized by no fear of man. Secondly, who know their place. Third, John the Baptist was a man like us. John the Baptist was a man like us. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Again, if you follow along in the chair, Bible is page 863. Luke chapter 7. And this may be extremely comforting for some of you here today. It's been comforting for me. In Luke chapter 7, verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And then he answered them and said, go tell John what you see. That to me sounds like doubt. John the Baptist doubted. In John's life I see that he fasted. He was poor. He was thrown into prison and killed. He had physical suffering. I also see that spiritual leaders hated him. People mocked him. 
And even though his own disciples left him for Jesus, I think there's an emotional suffering there. But John the Baptist also had doubt. There was spiritual suffering. A Scottish preacher, Alexander White, once wrote this, The God of all comforts be thanked for Elijah and John and for the slew of despond, which if you've never read um, Pilgrim's Progress, I highly recommend the book Pilgrim's Progress. It talks about how almost every single person in their life goes through a time of mourning where it's just like it's all cloudy days. It's like a constant winter. Uh, wait a minute. Chronicles of Narnia just came to mind. It's always winter and never Christmas. <laughs> Have you read that or heard that? Where it's just like, it doesn't matter what you do. You're just stuck in this, in this pit of despair. And you can't get out of it. And you're like, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, and I'm just stuck here. And Alexander White says, praise God for the pit of despair. They are written for our rebuke and for our learning and for our comfort. Had these things not been written, we would surely turn away from our Bible in despair and say, these men are giants and saints. These are not men like we are. But you read the Bible and you see someone who is doubting and you go, I get that. I've been there. I've struggled with that. I can't read minds, but I may speak to someone today who is going through a season of despair Perhaps you've cried out to God and he seems not to answer or you feel like you're doing everything you can to hold on to your faith, but it's slipping through your fingers. A lot of youth especially go through a time where it's like, I was raised with this. How, I'm trying as hard as I can to hold on to this, but, but it's just slipping. It's like, it's like I'm trying to hold on to it and I can't hold on to it. I'm losing my grip on my faith. Perhaps you're going through that. What you believe so firmly now seems to be a struggle and you feel embarrassed to share that you're struggling. Here we have John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's the one who declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He announced Jesus as the Messiah. He baptized Jesus. His life was like, you're setting up the way for the Messiah. Jesus is coming after you. Everything, like his entire life was devoted to Jesus is the Christ. And here he is doubting. But you know at what point he's doubting? When he's in prison, locked up. Have you ever done what's right and your life's gotten worse? I sure have. In fact, and I, I think I've shared this before, I've talked with many believers, especially, I say young men, which means at least my age. <laughs> uh, and, and they try to get serious about God. They try to get serious about studying His Word. They try to get serious about turning away from sin. And they're like, my life's gotten harder. Or they'll try to get serious about loving their wife, and their marriage gets worse. Or they try to get serious about honoring God at work, and they get teased more at work. And work gets even harder. And they're like, wait a minute. This makes no sense. And then you go, well, John had that. Sure, I'm glad that we have someone who is like us. We don't go to the Bible and find all these perfect people who never struggled. We go to the Bible and find people who are like us. This quote might help you. It says, On dark and discouraging days, some of God's choicest servants have lost their joy 
and thought that they had failed, including Moses, David, Elijah, and Jeremiah. But then they turned to the Lord by faith and recovered their joy. I like this line. It isn't too good, or it isn't good to be too introspective. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and trust him. That line right there, it isn't good to be too introspective because usually what happens is when you begin to doubt, you begin to look inward. And guess what? If your faith is on the inside, if your faith is on you, and if your faith is on how hard you can hold on to Christ, you're going to get more depressed. What will this child become? You know, if you're doubting, don't cast your faith on faith. We aren't. Have you... I hope I can say that you've listened to Christmas music by now, right? Okay, when you're, you watch out, better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why, Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. Last night we're driving home from your house, and uh, Elise goes, well, man, if Santa were, never mind, I'm videoed, I'm just going to move on. Anyway, something was said, <laughs> where she's like, Santa would know that I'm doing something wrong. But you remember in the song it says, so be good for goodness sake. Reminds me of uh, the sound of music. I have confidence in confidence alone. How's that working out for you? We We don't have faith in faith. We're not good for goodness sake. We have faith in Christ. We have faith in His promises. If you begin to doubt and you start looking inward, looking for faith, looking for the strength of your own faith, you're going to be discouraged and it's going to get worse. Because our faith is in the Word of God, not in ourselves. Our faith is not in how hard we hold on to Christ. I love the picture of Peter. If you've ever seen the painting of Peter, you know when he's sinking down and Christ has a hold of his wrist. I love that because what we like to think of is Peter and Jesus holding hands where Peter kind of holds on to Jesus a little bit and Jesus kind of holds on to Peter and that's how faith is held on. You know, I kind of hold on to God and he kind of holds on to me. It's like, nope, he grabs my wrist because I got nothing. John doubted. He was a man like us. And one more thought. If you're like, hey, I still am really struggling and I don't think I want to trust Christ. I think I'm going to turn away from Christ. Here's another question I love to ask people and I encourage you to ask them. If you decide to turn from Jesus, what are you going to turn to? Because you don't give up faith. You just switch what you're trusting in. And I, I still have someone up at Casey's. They, they, they groan whenever I walk in the door. They're like, oh, no. Pastor Aaron's back. Just stop ordering pizza. Just stop it. Like, Because one of my questions that I've asked them is, if God isn't real, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering? I have an answer for that. If God isn't real, what is the meaning of life? I have an answer for that. And they're like, what's your answer? And I said, you give me yours, and I'll give you mine. They're still working on it. They have till January. That's their deadline. <laughs> and then I got to go, and you got to give me an answer. And, and seriously consider, okay, if I'm going to turn from Christ, and I'm going to turn to something, is what I'm turning to going to answer the deepest questions that I still have? He was a man like us. Characteristic number four is that John the Baptist was a man praised by Jesus. 
In Luke chapter 7, you should be there. Luke chapter 7, verse 21. It's page 864. Actually, go to verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man who is scared of others? Yeah, that doesn't happen. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He wore camel's hair and he ate locusts. You didn't find that. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury, not in the wilderness. They're in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yep. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. As a human being, none is greater than John. Yet every single one who is a believer is even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I'm not saying that John wasn't saved, but he's saying John was one of the greatest men of all time. Jesus said that none was greater than John. You see, God does not see as man sees. God does not judge the way humans do. Let's look over at what John preached. Go to Luke chapter 3. What was his message that he preached that made him so great? Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. We already read verse 7 through... Oh, we read verses 7 through 14. Where John tells them to bear fruits, in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And he goes on and he speaks very, very difficult words to them. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets and he had a hard message. He said, you brood of vipers, repent. Today we are called ambassadors and we're trusted with the message of be reconciled to God. That's our message. John had hard news. We have good news. John's message was make ready for Jesus. Our message is Jesus has come, receive him. And I try not to take for granted that there may be someone here who has not received Christ as your Savior. You don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus. And even as I've talked with people before, they're like, I remember when I got saved, when I was born again, different words that we use for the time when we, we transferred our faith from ourselves to Christ for our eternal life. They said, I didn't realize that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus. I thought I was kind of like, God's over there, I'm down here, I'm always below him. But no, God wants a relationship with me. And I believe that there's probably still someone here today who has not yet had that relationship with God. The Bible describes you as an enemy of God, as weak and ungodly. And it says that the wages of your sin is death and that you need to repent or to change your mind about your sin and about Jesus. You need to believe that he died for you and rose again and that your eternal life is secure in him and him alone. And I want to tell you a story because you've probably heard that before. If you've gone to church for any period of time, you've probably heard that idea, I need to trust in Jesus, I need to believe in Jesus. But I have found the more people that I talk to, they might know it up here, but in the back of their mind, they're like, well, I know it, so I'm going to live my life, and when it gets towards the end, I'll pray a quick prayer, trust Jesus as my Savior, and I'll be good. On my deathbed, I'll, 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 I'll get it all taken care of. I'll get it all figured out. A story I read one time was, there's a group of men upstairs in a large apartment building amusing themselves with a game of cards. One of them asked, what in the world is that? The window's red. And I think I hear something in the streets. Is the house on fire? Oh, said another one. Don't worry about it. Shuffle the cards and let's finish our game. We have plenty of time. 
Then all of a sudden they heard, fire, fire, fire. And the cry rose more sharply from the streets. But the gamblers continued their game. And one of them said, it's all right, my brave boys. We've got a door that leads to the roof. We can get out at the last minute. And one of them nervously asked, are you sure that we can get out that door? And he said, yeah, it's fine. He goes, well, I'm going to go check it. And he goes and checks it and finds it, finds it stuck. And the man who owns the apartment or who rents the apartment is like, don't worry. You kind of just have to lean into it. You know those doors. You probably have some of them in your house where it's like you have to twist the handle just a perfect way or you have to lean in and then you have to pull out. He goes, there, you, have to, you have to lean on it and then it will open just fine. The guy said, I just tried that and it doesn't work. And so then the, the man who rented it got a little bit nervous. And so soon with some fear, the renter gets up and tries it and the door won't budge. Do you think that they're going to go back to their game of cards now with the house on fire? No. They will destroy everything valuable in that apartment to try to get out, but they're going to find out that it's too late. And here's the thing. Is it possible for people to place their faith in Christ on their deathbed? Yes. Is it likely that a person who has heard the gospel their whole life and has rejected it their whole life will at the end of their life all of a sudden accept it genuinely. It's not likely. Jesus says in Scripture, today is the day of salvation. And so I urge you to seriously consider, have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted in Him for your eternal life? I've foolishly heard people say out loud, heaven's a long way away, I know how to be saved, and when I'm ready, I will. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't say to yourself, especially if you're a young person, hey, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to make my money, I'm going to enjoy life, and then I'll settle down and be serious about God. Don't say that. If you want to be saved from hell later, receive Christ now. If you want a meaningful relationship with Jesus later, start now. Think about this. The seeds that you're sowing today are the harvest that you'll reap tomorrow. The seeds you're sowing today are the harvest you're reaping tomorrow. The decisions that you make in your walk with God today affect your tomorrow. One commentator said this. He said, there are many disappointed people who want the Lord to help them, but they are unwilling to submit to him. They want their tears dried. They want their hopes raised, but they don't want their sins judged and exposed. In fact, I've heard, and we have this up here, but you probably heard this before. Something bad happens in a person's life, and they say, how could God allow that to happen? Because God is responsible for everything that's negative, and maybe you've asked that yourself. Where it's like, how could a good God allow this painful thing to happen? Well, we want God to judge some sins, but usually it's not our sins. And he goes on to say this. He says, they want their tears dried. They want happiness, but they don't want holiness. They want peace of mind, but they refuse to end their war against God. They want the preacher to remove the symptoms without radically dealing with the basic causes John the Baptist laid the axe to the root of the tree, but these people only want God to pluck off the ugly branches of their life they don't like. There can be no healing without pain. Before God can send his word and heal us, he must first send his word and convict us. A broken heart leads to a healed life. And so I urge you today to repent and believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Hey, uh, Herod hated John, but Jesus honored him. The religious hated John. But turn over to Matthew chapter 21. Or do we have that up here, Matthew 21? Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 21 with me. I want you to see how the tax collectors and prostitutes felt about John's message. Because there's a, there's a subtle lie going around in our day and age 
that the best way to care for sinners and to reach sinners and to reach those who are ungodly and wicked is to kind of just coddle them. Like, hey, your sin's okay. Trust Jesus and everything will be okay. Well, John the Baptist preached a very, very hard sermon. Look at Matthew chapter 21. It's page 826 or 827 in your chair Bible there. Verse 28 says this. What do you think? A man had two sons. This is an illustration. He says, he had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Literally this week, I had something like that happen. Someone asked me to do something like, nah. And then I was like, yeah, I probably should. After reading this verse. He went to the other son, and he said to him, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of his two sons did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first did, of course. Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw it, you were not afterward changed in your minds and believe him. I think one of the hardest people to reach with the gospel is a religious person. Because I've talked to people that say, you don't want me to come into your church. If I come into your church, the place will burn down. Do you know what I've done in my life? If I walk through those doors, it will, the lightning will strike. I literally had a guy I was building a relationship with. I've shared this with some people in our church before. And he came in for the first time to ever come to a service. He hadn't been to church in 15 years. He came in and he had a tie on and he had a dirty, dirty jeans with holes in them, but it was the best he had. And he, and he put it on. He came in on a Wednesday night and he walked in here and he was literally sweating. He was so nervous to walk in. And he walked into those doors and he stopped. And he's like, I can't walk into the sanctuary. And it's just me and him. It's like a prayer meeting night. I had like five people that showed up. And he's just standing there. Those are people that they go, I am way too bad to be able to earn heaven. And that's the perfect place to be to receive eternal life. Because guess what? We all are. None is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all become wicked. There's none righteous, not even one. This teaches me that sinners or wicked people don't need to be coddled. They need the truth. That, hey, bring all your sin. Because on the cross, Christ paid for all of it. No matter how much it was. You got a huge debt of sin. Christ paid for it. By faith in him, you can receive eternal life. And they say, okay. The religious say, uh-uh. I got to earn it. It's amazing to me how many people living in the pits of sin know that it's wrong. They hate where they are and they want set free. How sad it is when a church com comforts in sin instead of lovingly confronts. Like I said, it's people who tell me that your church will burn down if I come that I think would probably find the greatest hope and joy here. Maybe we need to be more like the repentant tax collectors than the stubborn religious people. So as we wrap this up, um, obviously I recognize this isn't a super specific Christmas sermon. John the Baptist was important in the, the role of serving Christ. Yet I think most of us parents at Christmas think about our kids. And um, we think often about our kids. And this week my kids got to open one present each and their faces were absolutely adorable. I love my children, and I want a bright future for my children. Yet when I think through that question, what will this child become, I don't know. 
I don't know, but I will praise God if our children are the four things we saw today, that they are children who grow up with no fear of man, but who fear God. Children who know their place. Children who are like others. They don't view themselves too highly. And those who are praised by Jesus. Because, you know, it says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What if your kid runs the country? What if your kid becomes president and doesn't know Jesus? The Bible says in 150 years, what is a profit? And to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. I'm going to pray for our children. And while I'm praying, I want you to hold your children or grandchildren in mind. If you don't have any children or if you are a child, I want you to think of someone that you know and love who is far from Jesus or seems to have little concern for him. So if you just go ahead and bow your heads, if that's you, that you're far from Jesus or you don't know him yet, hold yourself in your mind. Pray for yourself quietly as I pray. Our Father, you care more for our children than any of us ever could. You are the perfect Father with perfect desires for your children. And you see and know each name that is being held in our minds right now. And God, you understand the tears that the mothers and fathers have cried over their wayward children and relatives. You see the grandparents who long for their grandchildren to know and to love you. And you know the names of each young person here that's thinking of someone else. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a relative who just has no concern for you anymore. Maybe it's a teenager who's just wrestling with all these doubts. Maybe they're holding themselves in their own mind. God, you see that. You know each one. Bring glory to your name by changing the trajectory of those who are running from you. Send help to those who are in the pit of despair due to the trials of their life. Strengthen the doubting. Save the lost. Heal the brokenhearted and comfort the sorrowing. God, correct us in our parenting where we value earthly things for our children and give us eternal values. God, into your hands I commit my children. And I commit the children of those represented here. Lord, I commit their future and their faith to you. I commit their security or lack thereof to you. I pray you'd protect them by your power, strengthen them as they wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and forgive them of their sins. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.